Welcome to the podcast of Grace Covenant Church, where we are transformed by God's grace, connected through relationships, and committed to service. When I look out at the individuals and couples who come to celebrate recovery on a Thursday evening, I see a family of people who have a variety of wounds, coping behaviors, and attitudes. When they walk through the door on a Thursday night, they leave their mask there, and they begin a journey of letting God's transforming power chisel away at their human character, making them more like Jesus. I really like coming to CR. It's been two years now, and I like hanging out with people who have a great need for God. I love the honesty. I love the healing and the transformation, and I want to be called one of those people, those people who have experienced God. We were in an unhealthy relationship, and um, I began to go to CR, and he also began to go to CR later on as God was working on him, and that brought us together, and Um, At the end of my first year in Celebrate Recovery, uh, he was baptized by Pastor Robin, and a few weeks later, we were married. And that was just all through the first year of going to Celebrate Recovery. I began attending Celebrate Recovery about four years ago because of an inability to control my critical tongue. Working honestly through the 12-step CR process has not only helped me get this under control, but it's given me the tools to deal with other hang-ups and habits of mine. Facing the truth about myself and my family has brought a tremendous amount of healing and restoration. It's been several years now and my family is drug-free and um, the codependent cycle has been broken. I've never been open with anyone about my struggles until I became desperate, and that's what brought me to Celebrate Recovery. It's just a raw place where I can encounter people, and through those people, I get to encounter Jesus, and that is awesome. Realize real change indeed. Um, uh, That was um, some testimonies from Celebrate Recovery. Last week, we saw some testimonies from our marriage ministry called Reengage. They both have tables out in the lobby for you today if you want to know more about uh, the, the ministries that continue to expand in those areas. And then Celebrate Recovery, the table there for, is basically our caring ministry because they also have some assets and resources available to you for a ministry that's going to start very soon um, called Surviving the Holidays. It's, it's part of the grief care ministries. A lot of times, it's the holidays that... Um, make us more aware of the grief that we live with or maybe haven't dealt with. So, you know, maybe you could consider talking to someone at that table after church today. Again, those are some of the ministries that are expanding here at Grace uh, through the years. Uh, Certainly since we opened this new sanctuary, we've had a significant amount of growth, about over 55% of growth. And the biggest needs that we have now is for our uh, children's <laughs> people bring their children, lots of them here to Grace, and so our next uh, real ministry expansion is in the area of children's ministry and the student ministry. That is the junior high and senior high ministry, and then these other uh, uh, evening ministries, the Reengage and uh, Celebrate Recovery. That's going to be housed in a building called the Live Oak Building. It'll be down at the bottom of the campus, at the southern part of our campus. It'll be connected to the Cornerstone Building, and we're looking at um, 
this being the last children's building they'll ever have to build here at Grace Covenant Church. Now, if you want to know more about that in the lobby, you might have seen some tables on the way in, and there's a booklet there that is a really very well um, uh, put together a little booklet by our uh, media group, and it'll ask, answer many of the questions that you might have. I would encourage you to look at that notebook. And then there's, there's two Q&A sessions. One of them's tonight at 6.30, and it'll go to about 8 o'clock, and another one's on Tuesday night. So tonight, 6.30 to 8 o'clock, if you have questions. Today, what I'd like to do is talk about kind of the two big questions that uh, we, we didn't get to in the booklet that, uh, or alluded to anyway, that, that have been um, brought to our attention and I, to, help, to help you guys understand what we're doing. The first one has to do with uh, the, the building itself costs about $8 million dollars. Um, almost almost eight million dollars. So why not, you know, basically get a cheaper building and then and then we could pass on that extra money to uh, missions or ministries around the world. Put another way, uh, I think if you do the math, it's around two hundred and twenty dollars a square foot to build the Live Oak building. Why don't we build something for noticeably less and then and then pass on the savings to the rest of the kingdom of God? Great question. It came up when we brought when we were building this building as well. And what it comes down to is if you look at the cost of, of uh, church buildings and school buildings, because they're similar in a lot of ways, there's, there's kind of a saying in the business, you can pay me now or you can pay me later, but you're going to pay me. Oh, you're going to pay me. And, and it has to do with quality of construction. If you look at the, uh, the cost per square foot of schools, you'll see that they've gone up noticeably because school districts have realized that they've spent a lot of money on the front end on quality of construction, like insulation and siding and those sorts of things, and they don't have to pay week in and week out. Because the number one expense that we have, schools and churches have, is just the regular operating expenses and, and then maintenance to replace parts. And so the better you build it the first time, the less you have to deal with operating expenses and the less you have to replace parts that, are, that break. It's... You know, my, my house, the first house, I've owned two homes. Both of them were built in 1982. One of them was the cheapest house you could possibly put together and still be legal. Single pane windows, that sort of thing. It's about 1,500 square feet. And when we bought our second home, which is about 40% bigger, it's 2,200 square feet. It, was, it wasn't a custom home, but it was a nicer quality of construction. So we increased the size of our house by 40%. Our utility bills went down by about 50% because of quality construction. And not only was the air conditioner not running all the time, we didn't have to replace the air conditioner about every six years. So it is with schools and churches. There's nothing, if you look at this church, it's actually rather simple. It's, there's, nothing, there's only two things extravagant in this building, okay? One is the sound system. And that's because the gentleman that sold us the sound system, it was kind of his last big deal before he went to Seattle to become an executive pastor. And he gave us a great price. And we wanted to do that once and do it right. And the second thing that we probably went extravagant on is the chairs. And we did that because the last set of chairs we bought in the old auditorium were narrow and hard, and they're still here after 40 years. Now, if you would rather have narrow, hard chairs, you are welcome to, to visit any other of our places on campus, and you will not be disappointed by the discomfort levels. But we thought, we're going to keep these chairs for a long time if it's any indication from previous. And so the point is that we wanted to do this building right. And then and actually the maintenance on this building and utilities is less than our office building across the street, which is noticeably smaller. 
So we, so again, we're, instead of spe- spending six and a half million dollars on a on a poor building, we want to spend about seven and a half million dollars to buy a building that we won't have to keep maintaining. And then, for about two hundred thousand dollars more, we could make it look pretty. We like pretty. Second question. Second question. Okay, how how do we finance the building? How do we raise? How do we get money to to buy the corners? The I'm sorry, the the live oak building. Why don't we do like? Um, let's see. The Girl Scouts they sell cookies. The Cub Scouts. I think this is so funny. I mean, it's, it might be um, it might be slanting towards a gender, but the Cub Scouts in our neighborhood they don't even sell cookie. They sell cookie dough. They're not even going to try to cook them. I think it's just like they're guys. You know, it's like we're not going to cook these. You cook them. And being a guy, I don't cook them either. I just eat the dough raw when I finally get it. So they've they're working. They know their audience, don't they? So the girls bring cookies. The guys bring cookie dough. The men eat the raw cookie dough, and they finance their year uh, pretty much the way they do that. Some, church, some places when they're doing fundraisers, our daughter was on dance team, they did a, a garage sale. Um, some big denominations, they borrow from the main office, you know, maybe the Vatican or something. Well, what I'm going to look at today, I want you to see that there's just two overarching principles that help us look what the Bible says about how the church has been financed for low these 2,000 years. Actually, you could go back to the Older Testament as well and the priestly things of Israel. Okay, I want, to, I want us to look at two principles. Actually, they're kind of views, the way the view life, the way you view all of reality. If you could change the way you look at things in these two principles, right, then it would, it would help you not only understand how we do things around here, but how God has orchestrated a, a, a plan so that it brings people closer to him. And here's what's really fun too. It brings people closer to each other. So how does God want us to do what we do? He's going he's gonna to give us a plan so that we draw closer to him and we draw closer to each other. Okay, here's the first principle. This is, this is key to everything. You've got to get this part right. One, God owns everything. God owns everything. I know it's very easy for us to trip into kind of the common cultural view that, you know, I worked hard to get through school. I worked hard to get this job. I worked hard. I own that house. I own that car. I own that boat. But the fact of the matter is that, that, is, that is not the way the universe works. In, in uh, 1 Chronicles chapter 29, it's up on the screen here. It says, both riches and honor. Look, that's both your wealth and your reputation. Both riches and honor come from, from God and 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 God rules over all of them. And why is that? Why is that? Because the next sentence there, in your hand are power and might, and in your hand is to make great and to give strength to all. So riches and honor, okay, your wealth and your reputation, those belong to God, okay, because he is sovereign. He's in control of everything. And it is through his hand, his strength, his providence, that you and his power and might that you are made great and that you have, that you have strength. God controls everything. It, it, the reason you are well today is because God allowed that to happen. The reason you are in Austin, Texas in 2013 is because you made some choices, absolutely, but God caused things to happen so that that could be arranged. And, and therefore, he owns everything. Everything is created by him. Let's put it another way. Let's go back to even some more fundamental things. God created everything. So Psalm 50 says, you know, for every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills is mine. Very famous conversation between an older wealthy man 
And Blaise Pascal, right, the, the existential Christian thinker and philosopher, and he took him up to the top of this hill, and he said, the rich man says, as far as you can see, I own everything. And Pascal said, not in 20 years you won't. It's, it's God's. He's going to be dead in 20 years. He would own nothing. And, and when, when we grasp this, it, it frees us. Look, it, and when we say everything... We mean absolutely every organ in your body. Remember last summer, we went through a series, I hope you were here, we worked through just the idea of what worship is, and kind of the key um, passage for that series was um, that you, Romans 12, 1, therefore I urge you, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you give your bodies this as a living, holy sacrifice to God that's acceptable and pleasing. It's, in, it's, it's pleasing to God that you give him a body that's holy, Because that's the spiritual or logical expression of worship. Everything is his. Your body is his. And here's, this isn't, you know, just hypothetical. The whole story, the Christian story, starts in Luke chapter 1, where Mary is invaded. Remember the the, um, angel comes to her and says what they always say, don't be afraid. He said, don't be afraid, Mary. You, You have found favor in God. You have a great reputation. God has given you honor. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you will give him the name Jesus, and he will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him a throne from his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And the kingdom, his kingdom, it will never end. (laughs) And Mary says, okay, but I'm a virgin. I won't be having children. And, and essentially what the angel says, you know, straight from heaven is God's going to need that body that's his. And he's going to need your honor, your reputation. And it's most probable that there won't be three people in your whole life that will ever believe that you are a virgin and you gave birth to a son. And so <laughs> there'll be no day in your lifetime where people will say, oh, we were so wrong about all the names we called you in this little Jewish town. No, I'll need that honor and I'll need that body. And her response, I am the Lord's servant. May it be, may it be done to me as you said. The first truth is this, that everything belongs to God. And I, I know... Um, the initial response to that can be wanting to grab things and say, or, or debate. But I, I want to tell you, there's tremendous freedom in that truth. Well, because it's true, and truth does set you free, right? That, that, just how the math works. But listen, when you meet people that have lost anything or everything, they are so free. If they've had a near-death experience or they have gone bankrupt or, or maybe they just have this mindset in their life, they don't have to control all their possessions and be consumed with their physical health and their well-being and safety issues because everything belongs to God. And it's his to do with as he pleases. Naked I came, naked I will leave. I understand that. Everything in between is transitional. And so they're not consumed with worry about, like, their future because their future's not theirs, right? With their, with their mate because their mate belongs to God. With their children, they're not ultimately responsible for them. With all their stuff because it won't be their stuff because it never was. 
So the first point, I'm, I, I promise you this is a very liberating truth that everything belongs to God. The second truth is this, that we are managers of God's stuff. We are managers of God's stuff. So in the Bible, it's called stewardship. And sometimes when people talk about money and financial things, it's unfortunate they use that word when it comes to uh, the word stewardship because the word stewardship means in the Bible, it's kind of two words combined. And, it, and, and literally, it means house manager. Okay? It's the person who's in charge of the house. So it's the overseer, another good word would be, or supervisor. You are the supervisor of God's stuff. And, and so you get this title of, of managing, you're the manager of his assets, of God's assets. They're not yours, they're his. And, and if you can imagine this, um, this would be a great way to visualize your life. It's, it's a, a modern transition of, translation of what God would say, Jesus said in the parables. Like if you, were the, uh, if you were the manager of a Marriott downtown, for example, the really beautiful Marriott downtown, you were the head manager of that building. Okay? The building doesn't belong to you. But you manage it. So what would you do? For, for the pride of the owners, you would, you would study, you know, all best practices in hotel management. Of course you would. Absolutely. And then you would pursue people that had that same value that wanted to work there and did excellent at what they did. And then you would figure out some way to, to, to keep them. And then you would find people on the staff that didn't want to be there. And you'd find out a way to move them on and before they contaminate the rest of the group. And then you would, you would when, when corporate comes down and looks at your hotel, they are pleased with the way you have managed what belongs to them. So you're a hotel manager of your life. And the words that the Bible use, uses to explain your job description, kind of attributes that you must have to be a good hotel manager in the assets that God gives you, is faithful and wise. God wants you to be uh, trustworthy, dependable, right, and smart, not whimsical or goofy, right, emotional driven. I want you to think through this, but I want you to be dependable. Look at, look at a passage, and in, in, you know what I'll put on the screens here, Luke chapter 12. Jesus is summarizing his point here when he says, and the Lord said, okay, who, who then is the faithful, that's trustworthy, faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge, right? of his servants to give them their food and allowance at the proper time. So who's ever in charge of all these servants when I left, who's, I'm going to bless you guys. And here's the point. If you do well, look at the next two verses, verse 43 and 44. It will be good for that servant that did a good job, whom the master finds doing when he re- returns. I tell you the truth, he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. So you're a Marriott manager you managed the staff well. You, you fed them on time, right? You kept the hotel. And then when he comes back, he says, I want you to move down the street. I want you to run the four seasons now because I could trust you in this chain. I want to trust you in something bigger still. Everything is God's. And you just oversee it. You're just the manager. And again, listen to how freeing that is. It's not your body. You're just responsible for for, you know, maintaining it. It's not your family. You're just responsible for being wise, right? And, and dependable to be faithful and, and smart about how you, how you work things. Andrew Murray in uh, devotional said this, the world asks, how much do you have? But God asks, what are you doing with my things? See, one has to do with ownership. That's not even right. And the other one has to do with responsibility. 
So now what I'd like to do in kind of the last part of your outline there, okay, let's, how, do we, how can we learn together to be trustworthy and wise? How can we, how can we be faithful and dependable? I want to kind of give you steps in management, okay? And I wanna, again, I'm just going to go to the Bible and answer the question, how does God expect us to invest our resources uh, in, in light of in, in light of being asset managers, okay? These are not in any kind of order. Uh, I don't even know why I put them in order, in this order. So, so there, okay? There. Just random thinking on a week. The first one has to do with you, okay? The, the Bible says, look, I'm going to allow you to have business success in some kind of employment opportunity, whatever it might be, so that you can take care of yourself and your family, in, in 1 Timothy 5.8, it says, But if anyone does not provide for his own relatives, especially the members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than a non-believer. And so, so if you have the opportunity to be employed, okay, it's not people that can't be employed, or, uh, but if you, if you have an opportunity to be employed and you don't do it, you don't even take care, you don't even use your money to pay your own bills and the bills of your family, it's, worse, it's being worse than a non-believer. So, I mean, we had a, a gentleman here, a relatively famous disc jockey a few years ago, came to town. And about the time he arrived, this is the nature of that business, uh, he was fired. So he got here, bought a house, and then was let go. And because he, because he didn't want to neglect his own family and keep his opportunities open to be a disc jockey somewhere else, he started throwing newspapers. So he had a kind of a prestigious job with great honor and income. God gave him that. He started throwing newspapers that didn't give him any honor or notoriety, but provided an income for him because he wanted to take care of his family first. It's what the Bible says. He wanted to be trustworthy in that way. Okay, the second category that you give towards or whatever you use money for, the purpose of money, is towards God. It's towards God. When a person understands that um, they pretty much have a death sentence after being convicted of crimes against God, and then, and then a rescuer steps in and doesn't let you off, but takes the punishment for you. Okay. When that grabs a soul and then not only that, okay, that's salvation and that's great. I'm not okay. But then the spirit of God lives within that soul and gives a person the power. If they're obedient to Christ's words to absolutely transform the things in their lives that are lies and things that they're afraid of and things that hold them back and things that they could, could become, the Spirit of God gives them that. Well, when a person experiences those, those transformations, real life, real change, they say, I want to be part of what God is doing in this world through his church. I mean, I mean that is just all there is to it. I mean, a person that has that happen to them, they want it to happen to other people. And they, they want to live their life differently. They, want, they don't want to do like, I don't know, um, like, like church is a game, but, but church is the answer to the world's problems. That The way God has set things up is that the Spirit is going to be working through his bride, the church, to, to change things for real. Because the world is in real trouble and the real solution that God's provided is, is the church. And so people that have been changed, right, real lives, and they've been changed in real ways, they realize, I want to be part of something where it's, you know, one heart, one marriage, one family, one generation, right, at a time where people can go to some place and have that revolution take place in their own lives. And they say, you know what, I don't have to spend everything on my family, 
I'm going to start living in a way that expresses this kind of a radical and strategic, aggressive investment in the things that God is doing. Let me just say that again. They want to live in a way so they can invest in, in radically and strategically in the thing that God, things that God's doing in churches. So it's not club church anymore. It's like, oh, I get it now. That's, that's his plan. That's what he's doing. So they are strategic and aggressive that way. Look at uh, 2 Corinthians 8, 7. I'll, again, I'll put it on the screen. It just saves time. And, and this is interesting. Look how Paul's just telling people what you ought to be excelling in. But just as you excel in everything, okay, in faith, excel, in speech, excel, in knowledge, excel, in, in complete uh, earnestness of your love for us, excel. But also you need to excel in the grace of giving. I mean, doesn't this look a little bit like, a, <laughs> at least when I read it, I thought, oh, this is a tennis coach. Okay, you got a good serve. You have a good volley. You should excel in that. You should excel in a, absolutely, you should excel in a forehand. You should excel in an overhead. You should excel especially in your backhand. No one likes excelling in their backhand. Do you know anything about it? If you weight, lift weights, it's no one likes leg day, right? It's, it's, it's the leg day of tennis. It is a thing that nobody wants to deal with. And Paul says, you know what? You need to especially excel in giving because you can't win in tennis if you excel in loving others and the way you speak truth and love. And if you are excelling in your knowledge of God but still don't have this, then you can't enjoy the fullness of what what God is up to. So later on in the chapter, he says this. Remember, whoever sows sparingly will reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will reap generously. Each man should give in the way they've decided to give in their heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, but because they are joy-filled in their giving. Paul says, look, in, in your acceleration, in excelling in this gift of giving, this grace of giving, just remember this. If you plant three watermelon seeds, don't get your hopes up. If you plant 3,000 watermelon seeds, you'd better brace yourself because that's the way God works in this way. Now, this is not a mild topic for me. This, um, this is a significant, maybe the single most significant issue in my life with walking with Christ. And I'll just tell you a couple of stories to give you an idea of what could happen. When I was um, 12 years old, we were uh, in, in a very difficult time in our family's life. My dad was in a major job or occupation transition. And I think there was a prevailing feeling of fear in our house financially. I, you know, you don't remember a lot of details when you're younger. You remember moods, I think, a lot of times. And I remember the mood of fear of not being able to make a payment of some kind for food or shelter. And it got so bad that my mom and dad, and they were so sweet about this, they sat the three older kids down, and I was the youngest of the three, and they said, uh, we, mom and dad, they said, we need to borrow some money from you kids. You guys are we had a paper route and my sister was babysitting and we just need maybe for two months to borrow some of your savings and we'll give it back and we'll even pay you interest. And if you don't want to, that's fine too. They were so, they were so generous, you know, with making it easy to say no. And so my brothers and sister, they, they had a, a pretty good sum of money they had saved up and they said, well, sure, of course. And then they looked at me and I said, no, six, I had $67 in my little bank account, $67. And I was not going to give it to my parents to pay for the mortgage of the house where I lived or pay for the food that I would eat. And I, I went to bed that night. I remember crying myself to sleep because I knew 
that I was, I was, that I was so wrong, you know, that I wouldn't give my parents, my parents money to pay for my bed. And I knew that I couldn't stop it. Do you know what I mean? I mean, I couldn't, if I rewind the tape, give me another chance. I would make the same choice. I couldn't stop myself from being a miser, that there was some sort of a demented safety in holding on to my $67, kind of like, you know what, if going gets, if the goings gets really bad, your family, they'll be on their own, but I'll have my $67. And I just remember being so ashamed, and the Bible says I should be ashamed. It says that in Second Thessalonians 3, that I'd be ashamed that I wouldn't even help my own family. And so that's how bad it is in my life. Now, because... Because of the fruit of the Spirit, and the fruit of the Spirit is, is certain but slow. God worked in this area of my life, and, he, and I knew early on that I had to get you know, right on with this. And so early on in my life, it was the thing I kept putting in the back and didn't want to talk about. Anytime we'd talk about anything, it was always that was the issue. We can talk about three other things, and I'll let you choose the three, but we're not going to talk about that. And then finally, I kind of got cornered, and then we started talking about it. God and I did. And then let me just tell you, I I don't, I mean, there's a lot of stories involved because it was a lifestyle. I mean, right? Anything that kind of demented is a lifestyle. And I I wrecked relationships over, over pennies. But when I applied for the job here, the senior pastor job, I don't know why, but I had so many interviews and so many, um, I don't know, so much vetting. And I, I still don't know why, but one of the things they wanted was all of my financial information. And so this is years later, and, and so I gave him all my financial information, and one of the elders was in charge of financial planning for people, and he wanted to meet with me. And so I was like, uh-oh, I'm in trouble. And so we met, and he said, listen... You know, uh, you're, I'm going to give you a, a, a passing grade on this. We were worried about you being in too much debt or whatever it might be. But, um, but I need to tell you that you need to quit giving so much to the church. I'd come that far. I'm telling you that because I'm going to tell you what God can do in your life. He said, you have to quit giving so much to the church. You're giving, you know, too much of a percentage and you're giving too much in kind of a, a longer-term strategy. And I told him, I said, I will not promise you that I will give less. I can't because it is the cure for greed and, and hoarding and all kinds of wicked stuff in me that won't go away. And this is the only cure that I know. I will promise you this. I will start saving more, but I'm going to continue to give more. And he said, if you promise to save more, I'll let you, I'll let you leave. <laughs> I said, I'll, I promise to save more. Here's the point. I've never been freer. It's, it's, I don't have to go to bed ashamed. I don't, have to, I don't have to think about that in my life. I've got plenty of other stuff, okay? but I'm just telling you that if you can do this, you, were, you don't know people that it were, were as covetous and greedy as I am. And, and so I'm just giving you this as a, just a story to say there's a, there's a victory lap out there for you too. If you want to go to a seminar, we have one in January. I think there's something in the notebook or your bulletin. There's something uh, on the website. You have to learn how a lot of times. We want to be part of that, okay? So, okay, what's the strategic way to, to manage God's assets? One, you look at how you pay your own family bills. Two, you look at what God's doing around the world in the local church, and you give there. You live your life around that. And third, you give to others. You give to others. In Acts, we've quoted this a few times now right, lately. It's, you know, 
they're, they're remembering the words of Jesus, and he's saying, look, you need to look out for the, the needy and the poor. And remember what Jesus says, the red letter in, in the book of Acts, chapter 20, it says, it says, it is better to give than receive. And so God is always trying to conform us to the image of Christ, and Christ is a giver, not a taker. And he's saying, look for opportunities to give to other people in every chance you can. And so that's how you manage the assets. Everything belongs to God. That's how, you, that's how you manage your family, you know. You take care of your family. You use your children for God's work. Use your children to care for other people. Teach that, the, the outline as well. That's, that's what asset management looks like in the kingdom of God. Now here in, at Grace, we're on a journey together. The whole church is on a journey. Next week, I can't wait to tell you about whether it's financial or otherwise. I want to tell you how a journey with Christ can set you free from the things where your whole life, has been entangled with something, the way you were made or the way you were raised, whatever it is, whatever is, t- is chaining you to earth, you know, instead of heaven. I want to I tell you how to be free from that next week. We're on this journey together. It's through journeys that people find out about the, the, the power of God's grace. For us, and this, what we're doing to this season in the history of this church is we're expanding the ministries, and we've run out of square footage to house those ministries, and we're asking people at Grace to make a two-year commitment. This is how it's done in the Bible, okay? This is how they did it in the Old Testament, you know, when they gave to the Ark of the Covenant getting built. This is how they paid for Solomon's temple getting built. This is how the churches were, were, took, were taking off offerings in the New Testament, what they'll do, they'll have people just come down and give their offerings. And so what we're going to ask people to do is do that in two weeks from now. So for 13 days, we're asking everyone to pray about what they would give to this church to expand the ministries here in addition to the regular giving. It doesn't help us if you take regular giving and move it over to this live oak building because then we have to turn off all the utilities. Okay, So we need both. So it's additional giving for the next two years. And then we'll give you two weeks to think about that. And then we'll, we'll give everyone a card like this. And, and you'll fill it out, you know, a, a total amount give, given and then how you might be giving that. And then, listen, I want you to see this because the people that advise us on how to do this because we're new at it, they tell us not to do this every time we do it, and we do it anyway. We put a box on there and says, no, I have prayerfully considered what God wants me to do, and we're not going to be able to give at this time. Because here's the thing, we're all in different places in life. Spiritually speaking, some people aren't ready for this. We're in different places financially in life. Some people aren't ready financially to be able to give, you know, above and beyond. And so we put a box on there because here's why. Because in the Older Testament and the Newer Testament, people came forward like as families and gave gifts to God and made commitments. And we want everyone to be able to come forward and put something in these little vases that we might have. We're still working on that. Some place to put a card. We want everybody to do that. And we want everybody to spend two weeks praying about it. You'll get a car on the way out. Now, here's what has to happen for this to work, okay? This is just kind of a funny little reality. It's kind of pithy. The only way we're going to raise 6 to $12 million at a church our size is if people that don't give regularly start giving. This is what you need to pray for. The people that don't give regularly start giving. The people that give regularly give more. And then we have what's called gifts of unusual size. This is what happens when Ray Anderson watches Princess Bride with too much pizza and then goes to bed thinking about the church. <clears throat> if you know about rodents of unusual size. So Ray, come here. Rodents of unusual, no, gifts of unusual size. That's, and so we need to pray for those three things. Pray for yourself and pray for your brother and sister. 
that we would have people that don't give start giving. The people that regularly give, give more. They make commitments to this and then gifts of unusual size because we'll need that. Here are the steps. Here's what the prayer, here are the steps in your prayer experience, in your journey experience. One, you just pray. You pray that God would take your whole life and you say to him, God, I will do anything, anywhere, with anyone at any time. And when you can pray that prayer sincerely, you will be free. I will go anywhere to do anything with anyone at any time. He pretty much owns you when you say that. It's a great place to be. Second, listen. Listen. If you are married, it's probable, not, not all, not pro, it's just probable, like 51% maybe, that he might give both of you the same message about how to give towards real lives, real change. And then three, you'll hear the message. This is where the will kicks in. You have to obey. Now you have to obey. Here's what we're asking you to do. We want you to consider doing that. You'll, you'll get a card like this on the way back. At our house, we kind of had these ahead of time. And they just sit and they just remind Melinda, it's only two of us now. Every time we walk, we just, we're praying for this. Melinda, do you have a number? No, I don't. Do you have a number? I'm working on a number. Okay, we just keep praying. In 13 days, we'll come up with a number. It'd be great if it came up before that. We fill out this card, and on November 17th, we're going to come up as a family. We're going to put it in that little container. We're going to be a church. It brings people. See the, see the strategy? No garage sales. Here's the strategy. You have to have a conversation with God, and it's going to draw you close to him. And then collectively, as a church, we're kind of all doing this at the same time. It draws us close to each other. It's a really great plan. All of his plans lead to lordship. <laughs> this is one of, of thousands. Let me pray for us, okay? And I'll come back to say goodbye in just a few minutes. Dear Lord Jesus, uh, thanks, thank you for, for putting us in situations where we have to trust you in new ways. Lord, I, I know there's people here that are just not comfortable at all, and I'd ask that you'd, you would calm them with the, the gentleness of your spirit, but not let them go. Don't let us, don't leave us in a place where there's something in our lives that keeps us from having a joy-filled relationship with you and with other people. And so, God, um, nag us gently about areas in our life that we need maybe even a journey to go on to be set free from. Lord, set us free. Let your truth set us free from the lies that we believe. We pray with great anticipation and expectation that you would answer that prayer. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. For more information about Grace, visit our website at grace360.org.